0: But testing in schools, says Dr. David Rubin, might not be the best strategy.
1: Something that I think we need to have as part of the conversation. The learning loss you're talking the about. The learning yeah. losses, my guess is eventually the socio-emotional losses, other kinds of health losses. People have made their choices, and we no longer can... Uh, can tailor our our school safety policy to the decisions of those who've opted not to get vaccinated. We do not need to be doing mass quarantining. Right now we have kids across America at home waiting out a 14-day quarantine. Totally unnecessary. The evidence is clear.
0: I think it's really interesting that you say the goal used to be to eliminate risk of exposure and that that's no longer the goal. How do you respond
2: to critics who say an economist shouldn't be giving public health advice?
1: I think... For me, the thing, the two things that I would say are one, I think we always need multiple perspectives.
3: Welcome to the Death Panel. To support the show and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, become a patron at patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two shows a week. This is the free one, so become a patron to access all of the paywalled episodes. And of course, if you'd like to help us out some more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, or follow us at deathpanel underscore. Today, we're back with the one and only Abby Cardis, who is holding down the death panel epidemiology desk so that we can revisit a topic that Abby has helped us cover for a long time now. Abby, welcome back. Are you ready for another round of COVID and schools? I guess. (laughs) I guess. It sounds like like a game show. (laughs) (laughs) Fine. (laughs) I'm here under duress. (laughs) I am excited
2: to be here, but I am a little bit just like exasperated and sad that
3: we're still having this conversation
0: the state of the discourse is not (laughs) good as they say Mm -mm. right
3: so one of our most comprehensive episodes on school reopenings was actually a year ago in january 2021 and i still hear from people several times a week that they have sent that episode around to try and help communicate the scope of the issue to friends families Co workers, or the other message that I always get is that it's being used as a political education tool for organizing to uh, make workplaces more safe for COVID and education workers. So, and obviously, since last January, so much has changed. And I think, you know, it's high time that we pulled back to really survey the whole situation again to give a new lay of the land. Because if, you know, we're considering between last January and now, it's The discourse hasn't updated much, right? But what we know has.
1: Yeah, it's actually kind of striking that we're now at a place where there's, I think, 889 pediatric hospitalizations a day on average. And, you know, I'm getting... Messages from people sending me this like NPR interview with uh, some researcher from uh, Children's Hospital, Philadelphia, saying that, you know, now would be the perfect time to like end testing uh, <laughs> oh in God, schools. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like it's it's and and like those takes actually I feel like as the situation uh, in pediatric hospitals is like worsened. It feels like that discourse almost like it feels like there's been like a digging in, like yeah, a, I was just a deeper, deeper <laughs> resistance. Yeah. Yeah.
2: It feels like the the objective kind of situation with the pandemic has gotten so much worse than certainly I was anticipating. And the discourse around schools, rather than I mean, this is just characteristic of the discourse around schools in general, I think, but instead of, you know, evolving to reflect the evolving situation with the virus the discourse has evolved but just in terms of digging into the same like bullshit positions (laughs) that have always kind of been a feature of this and that is I mean to me I can only imagine uh to you all having paid attention to this issue (laughs) you know for some time it's
0: having excruciatingly lived through it yeah yeah it's
2: uh it's immensely frustrating and like dispiriting to see that
0: well and that's why Today, uh, officially on this episode, we are here to say, in the words of Jonathan Shate, school closures were a catastrophic error. (laughs) Progressives still haven't reckoned with it. Sometimes you need to own up to an error so it's not repeated. You know what she's really
3: (laughs) saying is we should have been killing like a thousand kids a quarter the past right. two years and we unfortunately waited you doesn't know. he have a public latrine to be staking out somewhere like, <laughs> he, he's, he's on is the wire public latrine so <laughs> <laughs> doesn't he have some duties to be doing offering himself so people can take a shit in him somewhere right. right.
4: right,
0: um so, yeah, this I mean, obviously, I'm being sarcastic, but like the I think that this like chat piece, for example, that I just referenced and and obviously, you know, the the NPR interview that um, that Phil brought up, which also when. So, for instance, like uh, I went on uh, Twitter and I mentioned like Abby's going to be on the show again. You know, what do you want to hear us talk about regarding COVID in schools? What what are like important updates Um, to the discourse that you think and like this both the Chait article and that assertion from you know this NPR interview that like kind of fitting this pattern that we've talked about in a more broad sense of testing is no longer important so therefore why don't we just you know not bother doing that in schools or whatever. Which, by the Um, way, has
3: been a point since the very beginning. Right. The Mm -hmm. Great Barrington Declaration for months and months and months throughout 2020, before any of this was like even any of the vaccine was even rolled out, we're already giving the argument that we need to start rationing tests the way that we've seen people start saying, oh, well, now we need a ration test.
0: And and I think that this whole conversation, I think maybe just even to sort of begin this with before we get into a few of the specifics, I think. A really important piece of contextual information that I think is often really left out with like K through twelve schools, for example. That if you look at like the CDC's information on pediatric deaths, right Mm -hmm. up until September twenty September first, twenty twenty one, there were about five hundred children who had died of COVID nineteen. As of January sixteenth, twenty twenty two, January sixteenth, a couple days ago, um, that number was one thousand one hundred and twenty seven, and so I think. The reason I bring that up is because if you think about how, first of all, that is pretty staggering, right? So in the first like year children and a half. Children don't
3: have like high rates of mortality in general, right? right. Yeah. Like children, yes, there are things that kill children, but typically children don't die at this rate for but, no good reason. But my,
0: my point is, if you think about it in the first year and a half of the pandemic, it was at the very least more common for schools to be closed, for there to be remote options, then by the beginning of last fall, the truly, truly, like obviously a a lot of school districts like dropped guidelines and stuff uh, much earlier. But like as of the fall, you had this like mass dropping of a lot of earlier guidelines, um, less of an emphasis on remote options and you had uh, things like by it was only like the late spring and then like implemented later in the start of the fall semester for example that you had the CDC school social distancing guidance drop from six feet to three feet right
1: yeah it's um, I mean I like in Wisconsin for example like I, I think part of these things like this this discourse hasn't evolved because people haven't necessarily updated their knowledge about what's been happening there's this sense that like School closures are just this over uh, over correction, over response to something that's really not a problem. But like we have
2: the tools. Yeah, we have the tools. (laughs) But like,
1: but like, you know, but they also sort of harbor this image that like schools have just been like closed somehow this whole time. The majority, in fact, virtually all of the school districts in Wisconsin have had a an in-person option uh, for the entirety of. Of this school year. Like what's happening now is not like a deliberate pol- like prospective policy choice that, like they're making in the absence of, as Jonathan Chait. Uh, you know, <laughs> just amazingly suggests like, well, there's just not been the kind of cost benefit thinking that, uh, you know, uh, you know, as if that hasn't been going on the whole time. Yeah, that's um, been
2: only cost benefit thinking,
1: only cost benefit thinking. Right. But the the idea that school districts are just the, the sort of uh, nervous Nellies, you know, preemptively locking down ignores exactly what their policy choices have been. And now what there is, is a uh, staffing crisis because people so many people are getting infected and and so many children are getting infected that it's impossible To actually hold in-person classes in many cases. It doesn't make any sense from like an administrative perspective. But of course, it makes sense maybe from the perspective of like an opportunist like Jonathan Chait, whose wife works for like a charter school company. And, you know, like he's not even like he's not even a good person to argue with because it's just so naked what his interests are. But, you know, there you go.
2: Yeah, well, I kind of want to put like maybe an alternate or an alternative like spin on what you just said, Phil, which is that. The surge that we're currently in, you know, with Omicron is like pushing pediatric hospitalizations to new records. You know, the old records having been set in like the Delta surge that preceded it. And the fact that the discourse isn't updating to me is a signal that this is just like a purely ideological position. Right. Like these folks, John Chate, Emily Oster, Joseph, you know, the whole fucking clown car. Like there is plenty of evidence that we have a problem, right, that schools are struggling to stay <laughs> to stay even staffed enough to stay open, but their positions aren't changing, which to me is like the hallmark of just being like a purely ideological position. And then because there is all of this, you know, very textured reality, as you said, Phil, <laughs> you know, the the reality is that most schools have been. Open, you know, at least somewhat for for most of the pandemic. Uh, The reality is that a lot of schools just like straight up don't give a shit about COVID at all, like aren't doing anything in terms of mitigation.
3: Well, and it's also, uh, you know, it's like not necessarily to blame like the individual administrators, too, because like at large I think even if school administrators did give a lot of shits about COVID, they are limited to what they can personally do basically with their own money or with money they can fundraise from parents. As I, I talked about with Loretta Tarago in our episode from December where she talked about, you know, the only way her kids high school ended up with ventilation is because the parents paid to make you know, air filters. Which is obviously not an option everywhere. Right. Right. That's not an option everywhere. That that is like the you know, in the fact that the only way for an administrator to be able to like make their school safe right now is to go this route of having to, you know, seek private charity in order to supplement it is just absolutely just, I I think the biggest indictment of the entire situation.
1: And I, you know, it's like, I think that there is uh, certainly like exhaustion among parents that I know and among teachers that I know in K-12 who are like, yeah, you know what? It's really fucking hard to teach kids in a virtual setting, especially like very young kids. But like, we're not talking about all of the policy choices that have made this the 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 like the contention in the conflict uh that we're having instead what you get is somebody like uh the president of the united states saying well states well local school districts have a lot of money uh they need to like spend it in ways that are going to en- enable in-person schooling to uh to just happen magically
0: this is this is really important i think yeah. because yeah the if, if you look at for instance a lot of the statements coming out of the biden administration um, a lot of the stuff that they do say is basically we gave uh, school districts money already. It's up to them whether they spent it the right way or whether they uh, how how they want to spend it. Therefore, all we can really do is implore school districts to spend it better or states to spend it better or to go towards like certain mitigation things or or testing or um, even, you know, ventilation, etc., if they haven't already, meanwhile, to again, set the sort of context, the backdrop for, for this, you know, one of the main things that I heard over and over again, when I posted saying like, what, what is the current state? Like, what are the lines that you keep hearing that are just like frustrating you as like people who work in schools, as parents, as students, as other caregivers, et cetera. And one of the main things was like, there's no plan. Like there's, there's no plan. There's very little mitigation. Basically, it seems like the plan was just everyone go back into school, regardless of how that actually looks. Um, if you look at, you know, there's that viral Reddit post that went around and it was basically showing one actually particularly well resourced comparatively high school in New York, for example, you know, students are showing up and like, there's not a teacher to teach the class. So they end up sitting in the auditorium all day or the situation where like in Moore, Oklahoma, a bunch of teachers are sick. So who's filling in, of course, like police officers who <laughs> then are posing for local media maskless with their guns still strapped to their legs. Well, and didn't Chicago
3: um, uh, spend all that money they were supposed to spend on school safety on hiring more school resource officers <laughs> instead, like right. early on in yeah. the pandemic?
2: Of course, like, well, it's well, going to <laughs> Yeah. personal preference. There was a New Yorker. I think it was in the New Yorker, an article I read about New York City public schools and they were interviewing parents. And one of the parents said something to the effect of, you know, our school district got all this money supposedly for mitigation. But what they've actually spent it on is a contract with like an ed tech group to administer God. more standardized tests, like to <sighs> quantify learning loss. like to and, some this other is, and, yeah. and this
0: is why I wanted to talk about this, because it's like, OK, if you think about it, what was the um, you know, you you guys we've been referencing like Jonathan Shates argument, but also a bunch of other people's arguments like because now so much of the line is becoming it was a mistake to shut down schools in the first place. Whereas, you know, as I mentioned before, yeah. who like who the fuck knows, like, like the counterfactual of if schools have been open this entire time, who the fuck knows if, if it would if it even would have been possible to reproduce the line that COVID is like safe in children or that children are supermen or whatever because th- th- having school closures in the first place may have like prevented a lot of the deaths that we might have otherwise seen, right? And in that's the not to say that if we had school then,
3: open or something and a lot of children got sick and died early on that something would have been done because I've seen a lot of people leverage that like, oh, it's because we protected kids that like people weren't able to realize and if kids were dying, they would realize. But I don't think that that's the case. I don't think there's necessarily some level of child death that would have made the pandemic happen differently <laughs>
2: No,
0: I, I agree. I'm just saying. But yeah,
3: kids are dying, but the pandemic
2: is a political problem that, like, right. no one. Right, and the, no and one is one thing that We did to address. try
3: and the one thing that we did to try and prevent kids from dying in the early days is now being used to prevent people from protecting kids from dying now. Right, and just yeah. just to
0: finish my point, basically, the much of the original point of closing down um, schools, much like the stay-at-home orders in the first place, was to put mitigation measures in place for the future. right, And right. I think that what we're seeing basically is that like over time, a lot of what that has become is rather than saying, okay, we need so much more than we maybe initially proposed or thought that we would, we are seeing, I think the continuing like winnowing down of what is considered acceptable mm-hmm. in terms of like number of testing or amount of like increased or improved ventilation etc mm-hmm. right
2: well and an expansive view of what's acceptable in terms of illness
3: <laughs> you know debility yes. and death mm-hmm. associated with having schools open <laughs> it's remarkable to compare how like extreme poverty is applied to the acceptable reality and realm of what we can do versus like the acceptable and reality of realm of like what is an acceptable covid health outcome for well people. yeah and so this is like this is something that
2: i've been feeling just generally but like it's it it's in really sharp relief in relation to the schools debate. But the lesson over the past two years now that we've really learned is that for our like political economic system, mass illness and mass death is like the only feasible or viable approach to managing something like this. And to me, that signals that something is like deeply wrong with our <laughs> our political processes.
1: No, but it's also I mean, I think what's going on here is a little bit. I mean, it's a little bit different than before, because like essentially this is a very kind of magical thinking about how money works and like what money does. So like Biden's point, uh, he said, we provided the states with one hundred and thirty billion with a B to specifically keep our students safe and schools open. Well, no, they didn't. Uh, what they did was they provided one hundred and thirty billion for general purposes, Right. In which schools could essentially use for everything. So as Abby said, a lot of schools used it. And in fact, there's like the only stipulation really in the thing is that you have to set aside a certain portion of it. I think you can set it. I think there's a minimum you have to set aside. That's like 10 percent for dealing with learning loss. Right. That's like the main stipulation in the thing. But it's also worth considering, like he's saying, like, all of this money isn't used. Well, that's also not true because. Yeah, it hasn't been spent out yet, but school districts have budgeted for it, right? They've passed budget plans and it's a four year performance period. So a lot of that money was not planned to go out uh, immediately, but it is tied up. It's not as simple as just reallocating things uh, right now. And the other thing to note is that when school districts got the ARP money in the spring, that was the exact same time that. I think that that money ended up going out like the payment date was over the summer. That was exact same time when the Biden administration was saying everything's cool gang we can just <laughs> go back to like normal life yeah. and you know we've got mm-hmm. like essentially like a vaccine only strategy. So under conditions of uncertainty, right? How you budget is really contingent on all of the information you have and if the Biden administration back then is saying, "Hey gang, no need to invest too much more in mitigation than what you've already been doing, right? Because we've got the the magical, you know, vaccine only strategy. Then how do you expect school districts to allocate that money, right? Obviously, they're not going to spend, you know, everything on uh, just mitigation. Obviously, they're going to tie it up in a bunch of initiatives. Now, interestingly enough, a lot of that money was spent on HVAC Um, there's like a national survey which suggests that at least what we know so far from some of these plans is that a good chunk of the money was spent on HVAC. But you also have to consider the sort of background here. School districts face, essentially, for the most part, a few states are exceptions, flat property taxes, declining revenues from the state government, and a tiny, 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 typical uh, funding from the federal government. So they only get crises uh, to take a huge bite at the federal funding like Apple. So there's, When crises happen, there's tons of shit that they end up having to spend money on. Right. And so what matters ultimately is like who who's the big constituency for it? They're all school districts are also facing things like staffing crises. Like teachers are quitting. Right. For obvious reasons, because what's happening is uh, ridiculous. What they're being asked to do is ridiculous. And the idea that like somehow you're going to like magically reallocate the money right now and have like an HVAC, huge HVAC project go on while school is in session in person and you're going to have like a bunch of construction on like an hvac project completely misunderstands one how hvac projects works two the fact that there's like supply chain problems with the hvac industry that the industry itself suggests that like is going to create a problem for the market in 2022 and the fact that like what the the air purification things that schools did spend their money on in 2021 were largely these like air purifiers that were like marketed to them with like no federal oversight or regulation, that ended up not really doing what they purported to do. Uh, this one company, I can't remember the name of it, but like Deborah Burks is like their uh, like big medical consultant. Uh, they ended up marketing all of these like junk products to school. To- so like, yeah, the My, my Pillow is,
2: guy is gonna invent an air yeah, purifier. Yeah,
1: it, it's right. <laughs> I mean, it's just. But my my point is that like, you can't say. Yeah, we gave you all this money. Now uh, reallocate it to the thing that you actually need to be doing. When all of the time over the last year, we've told you that it's actually not as important to do the things that we're now saying is important to do. Yeah, and totally uh, to like the idea that you're going to have all this money and then immediately overnight you're going to produce safe schools when. School infrastructure has been neglected for the past, like, two to three decades. Uh, school district, like, infrastructure right. has decayed. And, like, you, there are some cities where, like, no schools or, like, very a tiny percentage of schools even have HVAC systems. The Buildings are ancient. So, right. like, there's – and, like, my point is not to focus on Biden particularly – But like that kind of magical thinking is the same kind of magical thinking that leads a Dave Rubin to say, you know what? We don't really even need to be doing testing anymore in schools. It's this idea that if we somehow just say every everything that we need is there, figure it out. (laughs) Right. Um, That means nothing to a first grade teacher. That's in the middle of a wave like this. That makes no sense at all.
3: Well, and the thing, too, is that what did you say? That number was one hundred and thirty billion dollars.
1: Bill? One hundred thirty
3: billion. Yeah. OK, so like I tried to pull up like how many public schools there are in the United States. And I got a couple different numbers that range between 000, 000, and hundred and thirty thousand schools. So let's say like best case scenario, there's ninety eight thousand public schools in the United States, that gives them what, like 1.3 million each plus a little no, change? No, no, no.
1: It's, it's not quite. It doesn't quite work that way, though. There's a formula. It's like per pupil. It's it's per pupil. It's, oh, even
3: better. So there are definitely schools that are getting even less. Right. So like this is not a huge chunk of money. Right. If you were going to allocate it evenly amongst the schools, they would each only get like a little over a million dollars at best. Right. And the fact of the matter is, is that if you're going to have to overhaul an HVAC, that's going to eat up the bulk of your budget. Right. And because you haven't done that anyway, especially if you're
0: gonna do it the right way with like making it actually, you know, ventilation that is going to filter air at the level that you would actually right. need for something like COVID, right? Right. Yeah. And so
3: and so like one thing that I had I'd pulled up for this was this article that I had booked mark months ago when we had first been talking about all the HVAC issues in school and how, you know, as you were saying, Phil, there are many schools that don't even have it, right? There are schools with windows closed shut that, you know, have window units, right? Um and It's like the sort of state of HVAC in public schools is one of the most uneven, especially according to like the wealth of the district. Right. And there was this article from 2015 about how Martha's Vineyard was trying to like upgrade its schools because they were having all these problems with kids getting like really sick from the heat. Right. And, um, you know, on average, it was in this one article from Martha's Vineyard Times in 2015. They're like, you know, this one's going to cost four point five million to replace that one's going to cost three million to replace. There isn't enough money that they were ever going to be allocated in the first place out of that 130 billion dollars that was ever going to cover HVAC and testing, let alone anything else. Right? Like it's like each school really only has enough money to pick one thing, if they even have that.
1: Unless, unless of course you're taking that chunk. Of, so, like for I want to just give some clarity, like it's not just the mitigation me- measures that have some purchase on that because it's general money. You're not like saying this is the only thing you can use it for. And so a number of different people who have been neglected by the state and by the federal government for years have like some claim on that money because, you know, we're also facing like a staffing crisis and a number of other things that of course, like charter schools are like licking, of course, this amount of money going to public schools, charter schools are licking their chops over because yeah. they want private, you know, privatization of education even more so than we already have so you know when you don't have a huge constituency for uh like hvac systems and when hvac systems themselves are a huge like orders of magnitude larger investment capital investment than any number of other things and that capital investment is going to have to be sustaining over years beyond the performance period like this is a like it it doesn't make a lot of sense and Uh, On top of that, there are all of these other companies out there that are marketing to schools that are saying, hey, you don't really need to invest in like a big HVAC system change. Mm -hmm. All you need to do is like buy this little like air purifier, which like was developed with NASA technology is like one of the lines going out of these things. But it's like when like ninety nine percent of your schools don't have an HVAC system is the proposal then to spend one hundred percent of the money like on like creating them where they don't exist. Like that's kind of absurd. But it's also like nothing that you do because we failed in so many different ways. It's hard to say that anything that you do right now with the money magically is going to somehow uh, produce a a situation where teachers can teachers and students can be in school as normal and nobody gets infected or it's like incredibly manageable. Like that is that, that seems um, absurd, especially when you have people out there saying, yeah, what that means going back in person is also thanks Dave Rubin, abandoning testing too. And like abandoning other mitigation measures that we could have used.
2: Yeah. This is just like where this has all been going. I feel, you know, I remember back Last year, thinking that having, we're pretending to have all these arguments about, you know, scientific evidence, but the real argument that we're having is about, like, whether we can just stop caring about COVID, right, and just write off however many more deaths
3: are going to happen. What variables qualify us to stop caring about COVID. And they yeah, keep trying. And this, them.
2: <laughs> this just feels like so much more of that because, you know, some of these school officials, they're they're saying things like, you know, there's not really any evidence that, you know, a close contact in school translates to a positive case. And they're saying things like, you know, we're just trying to follow the health guidance To the letter, which is coming from the CDC, is very confusing. And like the bottom line is, like, okay, well, we don't really have to care about COVID anymore. And this, it's just like the most sinister sort of end game of the Biden administration's approach of just devolving responsibility to like the lowest possible unit or like the most individual possible unit. And it's just I don't I feel like the effect of it is to just heap more and more and more responsibility for managing these impossible things onto to individual people.
0: Well, and that's and that's a really important point, because I think one of the ways that, for instance, the test to stay protocol, which we we could probably get into, uh, like became something that the CDC officially adopted as a, a I think it was December 17th of uh, last year, just like at the end of last year. I think like one of the reasons that test to stay became An acceptable protocol uh, was through one through this under resourcing itself where you had school districts like Boston School District, for example, basically cutting their contact tracing because they were unable to keep up with it, Mm -hmm. you know, not stopping it because they didn't need as much contact tracing anymore. But in fact, the opposite, like literally being unable to effectively do it anymore And it's like the people who are supposed to be, you know, in person in the schools anyway, do not have the, are not being supported at all with the resources that they would need to do things like continue contact tracing in individual schools um, or continue, I'm sure, keeping up with testing in individual schools or for that matter, for, you know, a lot of teachers, especially public school teachers, like not having fundamental resources to even like so much as support doing hybrid classes or anything, or having, being able to like keep their classes running when like half or more of the class is out sick.
2: Yeah. Well, and I want to, I know that I've highlighted this on the podcast before, but you know, this, this has happened before, right? Like schools getting overwhelmed with contact tracing, schools maybe having to divert their resources like to testing in order to try to keep kids in the building that affects like the case counts that are coming out of schools. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And that's true of schools. That's also true of local public health departments. And so, you know, I just want to reemphasize for anyone who hasn't heard, you know, these many past episodes of the podcast, like where we've talked about this, um, these like resource constraints that public schools are facing should really make you think twice about, for example, you know any study that's showing that oh no one's getting no one's getting COVID in schools right that relies on self-reported data from schools because you know schools they're not public health departments like they're not appropriately resourced to be doing contact tracing to be doing test to test to stay um, and things like that and then the other thing that I want to say is that like no one wants to talk about this but this is all just like downstream of the pandemic right <laughs> like people want to talk about endemicity and like learning to live with the virus like. Unfortunately, this is what that looks like, right? Yeah, accepting endemicity is accepting these like really disruptive, these really difficult, you know, attempts to like mitigate the worst effects of the virus because, even if you don't give a shit about covid. Right. If half of your teaching staff is out that day, like you're not going to be able to have school.
1: Right. No, but Abby, I think this is a really good point, which is that, like to say that dealing with, you know, uh, or like th- this is like, uh, you know, we need to like live with the virus. It's like, OK, fine. We're going to live with the virus in a, you know, uh political economy that has uh our you know, elected leaders have decided needs to stay more or less exactly in place like as it was. Mm-hmm. And that like mm-hmm. somehow the idea that like actually, you know, massively reforming and like injecting, uh you know, emer- like much larger sums of money into the institutions on which we have shoveled the like vast majority of like societal responsibilities like yeah. schools yeah. Um, responsible
0: for social reproduction.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean that like we're going to like take take these institutions that people like, well, you know, shuttering schools, you know, in, it, you know, has regressive effects. And like one of the reasons that is true, if it is, is that schools are a, you know, huge service center for all kinds of things that we have just decided that people do not deserve uh, yep. As a matter of course is like yep, a yep, yep. a condition of human uh, existence but I don't hear anybody talking about um, how we need to make things easier for uh, parents and how it's a complete travesty that like even the child tax credit has now we've just like allowed that to expire and mm-hmm. haven't you know, taking any sort of emergency measures to, uh, reinstall that. Um, I mean, people
3: do invoke parents all the time. They just invoke them as if their needs align with the needs of businesses and their bosses, not according to the actual needs of parents, like as individuals or as heads of households. Like it frustrates me because so many times it's like, you know the the leverage of like we've well, got to think of the parents as employed right but the the way that parents needs are being misrepresented is absolutely obscene because you would think that the needs of parents basically you know reflect the the staffing preferences of cvs for staffing its pharmacy <laughs> which includes a lot
0: of the commentary some of the commentary from the left unfortunately yeah who have failed to like really ally themselves in the you, teachers' unions. No, no. Had
3: that little
2: rant. or
0: with fucking the students walking out mm-hmm, all over the country mm-hmm. yeah
2: well, I feel that, you know, the sense that I get from talking, you know, just in my own life to my friends, you know, my family members who are parents, the sense that I get is like, okay, you know, we're we're this many years in, like we have calibrated our sort of, you know, risk calculus to whatever it is, you know, like we've gotten <laughs> vaccinated, you know, we do whatever we do. And like right. what we really are, are needing is just like some kind of like clarity or stability but can't have that because you know we have to be faithful to this like charade that you know school buildings can just be open as normal that we can go back to normal and pretend that the virus doesn't exist even as like reality keeps contradicting that over and over and over again so like I don't know just anecdotally like this is really resonating what you said be with me just anecdotally because this does track to like kind of what I'm hearing which is a lot of you know stressed out parents are like okay you know hybrid virtual like whatever like we'll do it we just need to know what it's going to be so that we can like you know we can plan our lives around it and that is like the one thing that we can't have because like this whole debate is like as you're saying, be just
3: not really responsive to what needs actually are. (laughs) Right. I mean, we've covered schools so much that I hear from like dozens of parents, especially of kids in K to 12. But a lot of parents of preschoolers actually, too, who I think are one of the most like their needs have been abstracted so far from what they say to me are their day to day Mm -hmm. needs when they're Mm -hmm. complaining about, you know, the the decisions that they're having to make, the lack of a plan, the lack of the way that the lack of guidance from CDC has turned into like just total chaos at their local level mm-hmm. or interpersonally. I mean, issues of dealing with kids in different schools with different policies, right? Kids who are in kindergarten versus like their sibling is in middle school. It's a fucking disaster. And they their needs that they express are nothing like what you would hear like David Leonhardt or Emily Oster or Jonathan or J. G. Allen or Monica Gandhi or Ashish Jha, all of these fucking people who who always preface everything with, well, you know, the number one priority for parents is keeping schools open. No, their number one priority is they don't want their kids to get sick and die. And they also don't want to be sending their kids to school where they're going to sit around and do nothing all day. Also, if you're for eight hours with a bunch of other people in a small room. Right. If you're the
1: parent, if you're a parent, you don't get the privilege of having a number one priority. Everything is a number one priority.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Right. I mean, like, that's,
1: I mean, that's, that's the thing that, that's the really like the violence is done. It's like, you know, uh, you know, even among people I know who it's like, is their number one priority to like have their kids in school? Sure. But not under any condition. And like, is it it, like what uh, I think is infuriating for these people is not like, the role that teachers unions have but the role that the federal government has just decided that it doesn't have to play in supporting them yep. when they have to take a day off because their you know school is not in session.
3: Mm-hmm. Right. Right. That's all been left up to the generosity of individual employers, right? Because you know there's been zero attempt to do anything to try and mitigate what we're going to do about You know, the whole test, trace, isolate situation that we've had uh, discussing these new changes in the CDC guidelines, you know, where they're starting to talk about things like, oh, you know, if you have if you've uh, tested positive on day zero, then on day five, you can test out. Like one of the things I was talking to with someone who is a virologist who has three kids in uh, under sixth grade was like, well. I tested positive on Tuesday. My son tested positive on Wednesday. My wife tested positive on Thursday. And technically, my boss is now trying to make me go back to work. But I've got three positive people in the home. Right. And like, what am I really supposed to do? Leave my wife at home sick to cover as caregivers? For the, like, none of that is reflected. No one existing within a family unit is reflected in the CDC's test, trace, isolate exposure guidelines at all it's as if every single person lives by themselves in a studio apartment somewhere not as if there are actual families that live in a building together and like rely on each other for like day-to-day survival (laughs) right like it's just absurd because we're all just we're all just widgets you know what i mean like
2: we're all just supposed to like learn to code and go to work and the thing that enables that in the absence of like literally any type of social policy (laughs) is like You know, that parents can send kids to school in order to go to work
0: And this. And this is why specifically like the schools, the dynamic with schools is such an indicative microcosm of so many of the other uh, things going on in the pandemic and why I think in particular, too, often you can. uh, You can almost like tell what else someone is going to be really fucking horrible on regarding the pandemic by like seeing what they think about, uh, you know, whether schools should be in place or whatever, because so much of the as we've talked about, you know, not only is the case that like so much pandemic policy is predicated on this like personal responsibility rhetoric. It's also predicated on the idea that there are not cascading effects, uh, as you know, as B was mentioning from exposure from, you know, this this virus is ricocheting around society, like with abandon, basically. I mean, I would point again to that David Rubin uh, interview that's been brought up in this uh, conversation a couple of times, you know, him being the uh, director of policy lab at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and doing this uh, interview headlined in, in NPR, rethinking school safety in the age of Omicron. I mean, one of the things that he says there specifically is it's all bound up in this same I know that we've referenced this a little bit in the conversation but it is all bound up in this same uh logic of like oh we're we're going to reach some sort of endemicity as though endemic does not mean the continuation of death like when we talked we talked about this in the patron episode this week but Hoping for COVID to become endemic is not like the, the salve that everyone writes about it as or or talks about it as. Hoping that COVID is beco- gonna become endemic means that we are just going to like accept mass death, and continue to accept these deaths. And what it gets shrugged away as instead is comments like in this Dave David Rubin uh interview. Where he says, quote, and we no longer can tailor our school safety policy to the decisions of those who've opted not to get vaccinated, pinning everything on. <laughs> yeah,
3: beautiful.
0: Right, pinning everything on this Just presumption which i've seen
3: racing anyone that might not be responding to the vaccine properly
0: right which i've seen including like uh the, it's, it's like a similar line i've seen repeated from like we be mentioned it on a recent episode uh that like the this week in virology people have said similar stuff i saw like the assertion this week from someone at the intercept that like the all that all the people who remain unvaccinated now, it's like clearly been explicitly their choice that it's like ideological and that they are therefore like the scum of the earth and we should, you know, blame we we can continue to blame the entire pandemic on them and like wish, wish them death basically. And that as a result, as you know, David Rubin is saying here, you know, that shouldn't get in the way of our uh, schooling plans. Meanwhile, what we know actually is happening is very clear as it's leading to like people being constantly out,
4: mm-hmm.
0: um, you know, be, mentioned Ashish Jha jaw also like just, I think it was last week, you know, Ashish jaw being in public health at Brown. He just up, they updated their, um, Public health guidance, and one of the things that he like proclaims in this um, this video about the new public health guidance, but that's also written into their new um, into their new uh, sort of COVID policies, is the idea that they're no going to, no longer going to um, focus even on cases as a metric, but mm-hmm. instead focus on the overall impact on health and uh, and like well being or whatever of the virus. That like you're just going to basically <laughs> stop tracking. You know what I mean? Which is, which um, is just wild It's just the because, most
3: absurd thing in the world. And like, it assumes that everyone has consented to becoming infected with this. Yeah. Right? And it, it assumes consent as a default, which is, like, not actually really how you're supposed to do shit like this, right? Like, I, I don't assume... That it's good practice to uh, make uh, public health guidelines, assuming that everyone has already consented to becoming infected by something. And like the the fact of the matter is, is that basically any any critique of the potential health effects of this right of of opening schools leaving them open in such a disastrous way with no plans with kids not learning shit also kids are scared right yeah like fuck all you for like treating children as if they're inanimate objects that don't have their own feelings and fears and talking about them like they're not in the room like they can fucking hear you by the way And then, you know, the other thing is like when you point out, well, what about immune compromised people? What about people who live with immune compromised people? What about people who live with their grandparents? What about grandparents who are school workers? You know, there's a lot of contingencies here that are left out of a lot of these plans. And you have people like, well, I was debating if I was going to call her out by name, but I decided I am. Then you have people like Liz Hileyman, who is the... It's like science editor for a magazine for HIV AIDS patients and for hepatitis patients. And she's a science reporter out of San Francisco who this week was saying, you know, uh, when when asked, you know, what are we going to do about the fact that we can't sort of move on on this endemicity frame without cutting out very, very clear and obvious groups that we know we're cutting out? Uh, She says, well, I agree in principle, but unfortunately, the world is a dangerous place. If your immune system doesn't work, that was true before covid and will always be true. How can we protect those people without making the whole world live as though they were immune compromised? Yeah, we've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
3: So, I mean, I, I think, you know, it's like it it even comes from the people that supposedly are are supposed to be here and, and keeping an eye on these populations, right? Like, And that's really the attitude that you see. I mean, that's the attitude I get in my inbox constantly when people complain about our coverage on the show. You know, oh, you only focus on immune compromised stuff because you're afraid to die. It's like, well, yeah, aren't we all? Yeah, how
2: dare you?
1: <laughs> well, I mean, but it does sort of, it does illustrate a very important point, which is that, you know, risk risk tolerance is endogenous to it's it and risk tolerance isn't endogenous only to public health uh sort of conditions or one's own health conditions it's endogenous to uh the you know political economy of the country that you happen to live in and one thing that all of these sort of public statements do and one thing that interviews you know like that that npr interview and and any number of other sort of public proclamations do is they are whether or not they know it Whether or not they're well intentioned or not, they are trying to, and they ultimately, I think, will alter what people's uh, on the whole risk tolerance or risk preferences are. People, you know, I think begin begin to actually say, "Okay, who cares? Who cares?" People are
3: exhausted. Well, your condition, also your condition from the day of like your first ability to perceive media, um, especially in the United States, (laughs) to like think that people like me really don't matter.
1: And that that you're only a very tiny and insignificantly sized population. That's the other thing is that sort of statistically zero deflation, (laughs) statistically zero. Right. But the other thing is, I don't want this, you know, this idea that it's somehow um, the. It's this overwhelming and, you know, overreaction to um, objective conditions really, to me, doesn't adequately capture the way things are happening in the world right now. It's not, uh, you know, public. Let let me put it this way. I, I think the way that this narrative is often talked about is like these these high and mighty public health people who are paternalistic and have a. Vision of risk that nobody in the world holds they are telling people they're scaring people into taking more precaution than any objective condition with any amount of knowledge you might have about public health would warrant but that's not at all what's happening. People are staying home teachers are not going to teach when they are sick. They do not necessarily want to teach in classrooms where there is a series of uncontrolled uh, infections and like if you think that that is the level of risk tolerance that they should have. and what you were saying is I'm the 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 paternalist. I'm the one who knows best. and I am deciding that you must uh, go out. It's not about so this is the thing. I think it's like, okay, it's like maybe uncomfortable annoying for you, the commentator, the essayist, the, you know, Uh, part of the sort of like media class who's like saying, you know, continuing to talk about the pandemic. It's an annoying subject to continue to talk about. I get, you know, I suppose. But it, you know, to go from that to say, I actually know what the appropriate level of risk tolerance that a teacher should have. I know better than that person. Um, Who exactly is being the uh, wielding the sort of paternalistic banner at this point.
2: Yeah. Can I, I share? Can I read something? So I I read this uh, in- interview with Emily Oster, um, who is oh kind God. of like a perennial villain, <laughs> I guess, on this show for her uh, relentless advocacy for open schools. But I read this interview with her in the Boston Globe, and I wrote this quotation down in my notebook because I thought it was so funny. But it speaks to exactly what you're saying, Phil. So she's being interviewed about you know all her advocacy throughout the pandemic, and she says, and I'm quoting, "Brave, she's <laughs> yeah. so brave, Emily also so is so brave." Um, so I'm quoting. She said, "I think broadly, I got it right that schools were not the sources of super spreading events or even broadly. much spread at all. What I think I got wrong was there were many moments in which I did not recognize sufficiently some of the fear and some of the discomfort." that was driving people and fell too quickly into well let me show you the data so she's basically saying like well my biggest flaw is that i'm too data driven like
0: God, i care too yeah.
2: much <sighs> it's always
0: yeah it's always um it's it's always the the people who are most in favor of maintaining like the status quo of the political economy who are in fact the perfect behavioralists right who understand mm-hmm. human behavior and psychology flawlessly and who wield it Who understand that it is simply unimportant. Well, I guess actually, speaking of Austria, it's like unimportant how people feel about the pandemic, unless specifically uh, you are requesting that they submit comments to you for a 1300 page document about how much anxiety they have over like the continuation of what any mitigation measures.
2: Something that I also want to emphasize. I mean, obviously, I think schools are like Justin Feldman (laughs) was saying uh, yesterday, like, you know, schools are kind of like the anti-public health vanguard for a lot of reasons. And I think one of the reasons for this that I don't think can be overlooked is that as like a workplace, schools, people who work in schools tend to be like fairly organized in a way that is not necessarily true of other sectors. Um, And I, I mean, I remember last year I had like, I had epidemiologists, you know, on Twitter being like, "Okay, but like, why do you care about, you know, why do you care about this so much? Like, there are all these other workplaces where this is going on, like um, all these other workplaces where people are being kind of forced into unsafe conditions and, and all this stuff. And like, that's true. But I think a lot of what's maybe going on with schools is that teachers, other school staff like tend to be especially, you know, if they're working in public schools, tend to be unionized there's not really any space for like democratic input into the policy process as far as covid is concerned <laughs> and so i feel like a lot of the a lot of the fight is happening in this realm of schools because this is like one sector where workers actually do have you know some leverage and are somewhat empowered to like contest their working conditions and i don't think that can be i don't think that can yeah. be emphasized enough exactly
0: i mean but as we've talked about before too it's also a, a site where in order to do some of the deregulatory things regarding like COVID guidelines in other workplaces sometimes uh like with certain things you kind of have to do it first in schools so that like the workforce has like parenting duties taken off of their hands mm-hmm. often, you
1: yeah. know i mean it's also worth i think asking the question why you know not merely why Things are the way they are in schools and what federal policy failures have led to this outcome. But it's also worth asking the question, who wants to make this the top priority issue and who wants to make the uh, object of scorn, you know, teachers Who who, who is behind right. that? What what you know, what is what political project is that a part of? And it's like very obvious that schools are a huge like fault line, like for the right, they absolutely. And the thing is, regardless of what schools are doing now, they're coming for them. And like, there's, you know, they're coming for them in a far more aggressive way. And especially like in states like uh, Virginia, but there's like Mm -hmm. schools somehow allowing their students to, get sick and get hospitalized in large, like that's not going to stop that. Some like, again, this is another great instance of like magical thinking. Do you think that just like allowing schools, like kids to like go into school and like become hospitalized? Do you think that doesn't somehow help the charter school movement? Like it's really sort of baffling how that sort of has become a talking point as well. But like, yeah, there's a reason why we're like paying attention to it to the extent that we are. And there's a reason why uh there's been a, an effort to, like, push teachers, like, as a villain, just uncritically adopted by New York Times uh, journalists because they go through the perceptual screen of somebody like Emily Oster, who's one mm-hmm. of the best laundering outfits, you know, in history. It's like Al Capone level. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, mm-hmm. well, I mean, let me introduce you to the Walton Family Foundation. You know, like, <laughs> I she, Emily Oster has clarified, you know, the role of the funders of the school dashboard. But you know, I mean, I even wrote like a blog post about this way back in uh, December of 2020. I think she
0: also just recently like tweeted explicitly, like th- our big thank you to our basically murderers row of uh, <laughs> big thank you to our funders who funders. had nothing yeah. to
2: do with you know collecting the data. Di- and you know, the fact is, I believe it. I believe that the funders are not dictating you know, the the terms of the data collection or, you know, that they're not involved with the data analysis. I completely believe that. But that can be true at the same time that I think even as I say in that blog post, like Emily Oster is like a useful instrument for them in their project of privatizing public education in the US. And that has some really fucked up intersections with pandemic politics that I think you know, deserve to be explored in a real way. But instead, like, it's just this very emotive. (laughs) It feel I don't know. Yeah, it just like feels bad. But it's it's difficult to talk about like the the political economy, I guess, of the of the school reopening advocacy, even as right, it's propelling people like Glenn Youngkin in Virginia (laughs) to victory, which like the demonization of of teachers and their unions has been going on. For a long time. And I think what is something that's different about this like moment, but in a cool way is over the past several weeks, you know, there have been lots of walkouts like student organizing direct action by public school students to protest (laughs) their learning conditions, which seem completely untenable right now. Um, you know, to demand better mitigation policies, clearer guidance and things like that. And to me, I mean, that's like a very hopeful sign. And that kind of I mean, that kind of puts like a stake through the heart of like, <laughs> you know, the the reopening advocate narrative.
3: Well, and I mean, it, you know, it's like not surprising that then, you know, it was like <laughs> this past week um, I saw this tweet that Emily Oster retweeted congratulating her from Education Next, which I don't know if you guys know what that is, but it's like a. It's kind of like a weird journal that's published by Stanford University's Hoover Institute, which is like their sort of libertarian leaning. Scott Atlas was a a Hoover Institute all star, and it's it's also sponsored by the Kennedy School of Government, which is like takes a lot of funding from um, Heritage Foundation, Alliance for School Choice, and Center for Education Reform and Heartland Institute. And um, also funded by the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, which is basically dedicated to the idea that public school is like stupid and we need to reform the whole thing. So they uh, awarded Emily Oster the most influential Edu Scholar of the year for 2022 in economics. And she was like celebrating it out. And I was like, wow, this is just you know, it's, it's just, she is saying like, oh, you know, there's no connections here and there's no, there's no influence, right? Like these are just like-minded people supporting each other's ideas. And we're saying, no, that's exactly the point. These are like-minded people supporting each other's ideas.
0: And I think, well, and I think to, you know, drive that point further and to kind of stick to a a point that we often, you know, I, I think, I think take as something important to reiterate on the show you know we we obviously like i think you know focus a lot on personalities like Oster and people like that partially because um they're really indicative of big trends also because of course they're you know they often they have a habit of saying things that just like happen to be really grotesque and sometimes hilarious uh illustrations of exactly the kind of um you know ideological uh work that we're trying to critique right but also it's Again, with this idea of like the, the school's conversation as like a, a microcosm of the broader pandemic, receiving a lot of the lines that are kind of like bigger picture pandemic lines, right, that we that we talk about uh, all the time. I wanted to highlight one thing that was um, sent to me when I when I reached out about this, when I asked people, you know, mm-hmm. what, what should we respond to? Right. In the schools episode, so someone replied um, to this with just this incredible screenshot. I'm going to read this bit from an announcement from the Delaware Valley School District. Mm. The school board is expected to approve several items at its meeting on January 20th that may be of interest to you. Therefore, we wanted to give you as much notice as possible. Friday, January 21st. This will be the first day that we no longer contact Trace. Since the Omicron variant, and this is the important part, the, the uh, justification for it, since the Omicron variant is so prevalent throughout America and shows symptoms quickly, the common assumption is now that practically everyone has been or will be exposed shortly. Again, you know, see our, see our episode, our Patreon episode, um, from Monday where we talked about explicitly the prevalence of this line and it, this line ending up in the mouth of like Anthony Fauci and, um, mm-hmm. uh, Janet Woodcock of the FDA. Everyone should assume they've been exposed and check themselves daily for symptoms. People who test positive or show symptoms will still need to quarantine Wednesday, January 26th. This is slated to be day 90 and the end of the second quarter. A snow day would move it back a day. Quote unquote, Zoom for any student who wants it will end on the last day of the second quarter. Starting in the third quarter, we will go back to quote unquote, Zoom only for those students in quarantine slash isolation. So
2: I think like. This is Zoom
0: so for those who want it Sorry. Zoom
2: for any student who wants it. Well, what's so interesting Medicare to me, for
0: all who want it. Yeah. Sorry. Go this ahead. is
2: kind of interesting to me because this, this particular thing that you just said already is very illustrative of, I don't know. It feels like standing at the end of a long hallway, you know, full of doors <laughs> and like each door is like something that I can do to like, not get infected with COVID and like, all those doors are just like slamming shut. Right. It feels like the kind of like the the policy, like infrastructure, whatever, like these decision making processes are like a one way ratchet of just making it more and more impossible to even the, exercise your po- your personal responsibility to protect yourself from covid. And I heard that the Overton interview.
0: window has closed.
2: The Overton, <laughs> Yeah, the Overton door has fully closed. uh <laughs> I heard that interview with with Janet Woodcock and it was it really struck me because she said something like, "Okay, well, everyone is going to get it and we just need to we just need to acknowledge that and we need to plan for that. And we need to plan for that. You know what we need to do now is like make sure that our hospitals don't get overwhelmed. And I was just like, sweetie, like those are mutually exclusive Like propositions. Right. Like either everyone in the country gets Omicron in the next four weeks, like or the hospital system doesn't enter like a death spiral of terminal decay. Like there's no there's no like world in which like both of those things can be true at the same time. You know, you had talked already about, you know, we, we talk so much about people like Emily Oster because they're reflections of you know, things that are going on. But I also want to emphasize that, you know, people like Emily Oster, right, the the like minded people that she's collaborating with, you know, at the Walton Family Foundation, whatever, like long histories
3: of going after unions and trying to resist any attempts to make like teacher pay better or equalize school funding or increase budgets to like increase school repairs. They are not they're not
2: simply I mean, they are very reflective of what's going on. They're very exemplary, but they're also proactively crafting, right, the consensus about COVID, about COVID risk, about, you know, what's acceptable or necessary in school. I mean, they're even crafting the discourse about, you know, they've made up like... (laughs) like joseph allen and and all these people are now starting to talk about something called school hesitancy right which is really pathologizing and like oh okay like well we need to understand the root causes of school hesitancy and it's like i don't know
3: is it the potentially deadly virus like school safe (laughs) diagnose all parents who are anxious about the lack of safety in schools with a mental illness commit them take their children away Run government schools and we're good to go. Hysteresis,
0: mortalisis, or something. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> it's like, what exactly causes the fear of death? What exactly yes. <laughs> causes the fear of long COVID? What exactly causes the fear hustle, of debility? Artie, a lack of hustle, already.
3: A
2: lack of hustle. Yeah, you just got to get into the grind set, <laughs> yes. you know. No. And then it's all, it's all good.
3: Well, and you know the shitty thing too is that this has all obviously like become a talking point. Like any time you see someone saying from left, right, or center, right, like kids don't get sick from COVID, they're also saying like teachers' unions are hysterical. Because mm-hmm. that's a whole part of this, right? Because the number one constituency that's being held to blame here is not people like Emily Oster. It's not people like the Walton Family Foundation. It's not for sure not the fucking Hoover Institute. And it's barely the Biden administration at this point. It is all being pinned on teachers unions who are doing everything they can right now not just to protect their own labor conditions but the labor conditions of the other people in the buildings with them who are workers that are not in their union of the vendors who come in and out of their schools to make sure that the schools still have all the supplies that they want teachers unions are striking for their students for the families of their students for the people who live in the like communities around the students the students are striking too even now to support the teachers and to support and build like more solidarity and and consensus behind the fact that people who are in these conditions for eight hours or more a day, who are the ones who are actually having to sit in these rooms where Emily Oster is telling us to put them, right? That those people are not consenting to the conditions that they are being put into. But instead it's like this whole framework of, and you see this a lot from people on the left, right? Like there are a lot of people on the left who are very, very, very aggressive about Making it very clear and known that they think that kids are a okay fine from COVID and that schools must be open above all else, right? Yeah. And you know what? Like, if you are posting that shit right now, like you're a dumbass. You are being an <laughs> asshole Sorry. to labor organizers who well, yes. you purport to have as your North Star. Yeah. So I fuck love you. I love I was just gonna say <laughs>
2: the whole time you were talking about this, I was like, yeah, it's just straight up labor discipline is what's going on. Right? Yeah. Like yeah. the yeah. one Stop constituency that is organized enough to fight back, like, you know, or to even contest, you know, this like social reality of the pandemic that's being imposed on us by this like sinister public-private partnership of like the Biden administration and the fucking Walton family. Like it's just labor discipline. If you want to do labor discipline as a leftist, knock yourself out. Like have, a, you know, have a fucking great time. But I see this all the time in terms of, I mean, it's just, it's this individualism that like pervades everything. So I see it all the time from people on the left, like you know wearing <laughs> wearing a mask is going to like developmentally hinder children which is not true but also like i got my vaccine you know like we did what we were supposed to do and we're done like we are explicitly done caring about like other yeah, people, it's and choo- it's like
1: it's chuggy to care about it's chuggy to pandemic. care about other people, it's, it's which like, I guess so. No, but like, no, actually not. If you're like on the left, it's, like, it's that- chuggy
3: to have society or sociality at all. Yes, but that um, perfectly recapitulates
2: like <laughs> the Biden administration's approach. So,
1: yeah, good like, job. Once well, you know, again, it's,
3: congrats it's, to the team. You know, like, be- it's funny because it's like they're more embarrassed about being afraid of like something real then they are about essentially being perceived to being anxious about being anxious. Yeah. Right? Because it's it's ultimately like
2: vulnerability and confusion, but I guess it's maybe not if you like, but it's not even that.
1: I mean, it's just like, it's it to me, it's like, okay, this is a moment where, I mean, I, I, to me, I see it as all like epiphenomenal of this sort of like left pessimism. It's like, they're like, okay, well, there isn't anything that better that's gonna happen. So what else do we like rather than like, you know, talk about that, like that's the the thing that, that's perceived as chuggy is like to talk about what, what to make of that. It's like, well just sort of lean in yeah, to 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 despair and and just sort of hive off. But it yeah, Which, I mean, but it's like, you know, it's a wonderful way to become complicit in mm-hmm. uh just the same essentially the same line that like Jonathan Chait uh is putting out there. It's like a yes, great because this
2: yeah. is a this is a time, I think, I feel comfortable saying that, like, we are living through a time of profound social and economic disruption. And there are, like, segments of the—I mean, it's it's amazing to me how sort of absent, you know, the left that sort of coalesced around Bernie has been from, like, public debates about COVID and, and pandemic stuff. But, you know, we're living through this period of disruption— I think at this point, it's safe to say this is a period of transformation, right? Like, whenever this ends, our lives are not going to look the same as they did before. But I think there is this real desire, like, this real, I think, delusion that at some point we're going to go back to our lives just as they were in 2019. And like, the sooner we can do that, the better. (laughs) And if that means that we stop caring about COVID, if that means we stop testing, you know, kids in schools. Who who fucking cares because we need to go back to normal. And it's like, okay, I can I can understand how just like some, you know, some dipshit like who's not paying attention to anything could get there. But it's harder for me to understand how somebody who, you know, describes themselves as a leftist, right, like styles themselves as a leftist could get there because (laughs) times of, you know, disruption transition like. There are a lot of opportunities, like a lot of organizing targets that I feel would be, you know, really great if we had some kind of like political left to sort of coalesce around. But like, it's just sort of, yeah, yielding to this like pessimism, which is very discouraging.
0: Well, and, you know, not to not to get too internecy in here, because, you know, obviously these people are not our main target. But I do think as you to maybe put a put a pin in something that you mentioned, it's like it does say, I think, a lot about certain commentators let's say if simultaneously you want to the goal is to kind of you know go back to a you know 2019 (laughs) social order basically when putatively what you also want is fundamental transformative change to the political economy like you can leverage it off of the back of exactly this like this is a pure the pandemic is like as pure as is, is almost possible to get of a explication of like how intricately linked, you know, health and capital is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's what yeah. we've been talking about for talking two years, yes, but that's also what we've been talking about before the pandemic. So, you well, know, and
2: also, <laughs> I remember having this, I mean, back in the days, like when I was on Twitter, I remember like seeing you know, people who are, are putatively leftists, you know, kind of saying the oh, shit. Yeah, and it's just all like, in my DMS this week. And it's like, I don't know. Like if you, you know, if you've been in DSA for eight years and you can't fucking figure out like why it's a problem that like our social order is like concentrating death from a pandemic that we're not doing anything about in like <laughs> the most vulnerable segments of se- like, if you can't understand that in political <laughs> terms, like I can't fucking help you. Like, and no well, no, amount- no
0: Well, okay, you b- maybe Abby can't, but we can. In fact, that's what the show is for. In some yeah. ways, okay. Yeah, well, you can ahead. cut
3: that out, but you <laughs> know,
2: that's just like my personal frustration t- of like We're here I don't for you. understand. We
3: are here for you. We're not going to personally help you because we don't want to talk to you. But you can sit and listen to our podcast and take notes, <laughs> and yeah, you should em-
0: embrace meaning, embrace embrace giving a shit.
3: Yeah. No, and and you know, I think ultimately it's like one of the things that you that you hear right is is like, well, but what about children's mental health? children's mental health, when when they're out of school, when they're on lockdown, children's mental health is really poor. And it's a really big problem. And we have to get them back in school because if we don't, suicide rates are going to go up. Right. And I just want, as a final point, maybe to just close us out, I just want to point out um, a some, some data that was pulled from the CDC's full data set from the first year of the pandemic with every demographic included, um, run by Tyler Black, who is a suicidologist who I usually disagree with a lot because he's very opposed to patient self-advocacy, but he is a good researcher, actually. Um, And he has been really looking at, really, like this question of suicide and teens that keeps being raised and also younger children um, because it is a line that keeps being quoted, right? Like kids are getting depressed because they're not in school and we have to get them back into school, which of course ignores, you know, the, the school depressive pipeline, the whole carceral landscape of how school is and how punitive is and how depressed it makes a lot of kids to attend school because of like social dynamics. But like all that aside, right? So Tyler Black's data showed that during the first year of the pandemic with full lockdowns, that first school year, it represented the first time in 21 years that March through June school months had the same low suicide rate as July, a non-school month. Typically, school months are associated with a 36 to 55 percent increase in suicidality among high school kids. So there is absolutely a mental health crisis at hand. And it's the fact that we are talking about kids as if they don't exist, as if they're inanimate objects, and we're using them as pawns to reopen the economy without Any consideration for their lives, for the quality of their lives, or their social lives, or their futures, right? Like, this is the actual mental health crisis. Not if we don't get kids back to school, they're gonna get depressed. You know, it's like it's depressing to live through the situation that we're living through right now. And it would be a lot less depressing for schools, unions, workers, teachers, everyone, if there was a little more solidarity behind trying to keep each other safe. Instead of trying to force each other fucking back into the workplace so that, you know, things can go back to 2019 normal.
1: No. And this and this is the thing. This is not like this is not impossible stuff. This is like, I don't know, uh, reinstating emergency paid sick leave that expired on September 30th. Yeah, Like this is mm-hmm. like, you know, like the, uh, that's why I just can't get behind the pessimism here. Like the the things that actually have to happen are entirely like within the scope of government's ability to do something about. Yeah. We just choose not to do them.
2: Yeah. Well, and that's, that's what's so scary. Right. Is that like the social contract is being reformulated in real time, like to our detriment. It is, you know, it's scary. Like it's difficult to live through this, but I think it's important that we recognize that that is what's going on because there, you know, it's not hopeless and there are things that, that we can do, but yeah, as you were saying, Phil, um, these things, you know, as of right now, like we understand them as being within government's purview to do. I feel like the social contract is being rewritten such that, you know, we're, be- we're being taught not to expect that government can handle these kinds of things in the future. And to me, that seems like a pretty obvious place for some, you know, leftist advocacy to maybe get going, but. I I have been really surprised the degree to which like that hasn't been happening.
3: Well, and I think maybe that's a good place to leave it for today. Obviously, we will not stop talking about the situation with COVID and schools and the lack of safety for any people that are in those buildings right now. Um, Because as we've been talking about, it's a really important nexus that I think gatekeeps, whether or not other people people are able to advocate for their own workplace protections, right? Like if we can win in schools, we can use that leverage for pressure in other workplaces that are also high risk and also high density. And I think, you know, to really focus on that would definitely be, I think, a productive way to move forward. If you're feeling bad about your previously held takes on this and you're listening to this episode, like it's okay. Start yeah, fresh. I mean,
0: think about how we make even, mistakes.
3: We don't realize things.
0: Think about how even, you know, many of the ghouls that we've been talking about, like your Vinay prasads Prasad, et etc. They even, you know, will occasionally mention stuff like, oh, how does it make sense that uh, there's a school closure because case spread in the community is like so high. And so they, you know, they close the local school. But then like the movie theaters open, you're almost there. Almost yeah. there. Right? So like, close maybe, to getting it. Yeah, yeah, so close exactly. To
3: getting it. And it's, you know, and I think that's we'll leave it there for today. And uh, patrons, we will catch you early next week in the patron feed. If you'd like to become a patron and get access to all of our weekly bonus episodes, patreon.com slash death panel pod. And if you want to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes or follow us at death panel underscore. And as always, Medicare for all now, solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.
0: it sounds like we're all in agreement that uh closing schools at all ever at any point during the pandemic is a catastrophic mistake like akin the to the uh, Iraq war.
2: Yep. Um, mm-hmm. You know, yeah, yeah yep. that too. Nate Silver got in trouble for saying that recently, but fucking Vinay Prasad was saying that, you know, months ago. Like these talking points like they they come from they I'm sorry, they away. come from UCSF. They come from like yeah. the tr- mm-hmm. honestly like the urine-soaked corner of Twitter where like, Stanford. <laughs> Vinay Prasad hangs out and it takes you know sometimes it only takes a couple weeks sometimes there wasn't a randomized
0: control trial proving that that corner is urine soaked
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah coin flip to assign people to running one right now yeah to urine (laughs) or no urine um